0: Hello and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Frozen 2, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand and how they influence pop culture at large. <laughs> A brief disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney+, Plus. so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and in this special bonus episode of Disneyversity, we'll be taking a brief pause in the circle of life that is the regular podcast to look back on the first five features that began the legacy of the Walt Disney Animation Studio. So that means no required viewing this week, no homework, just a study group catch-up before we plough into the next era of Disney's animated output. One thing, however, remains exactly the same for this episode, and that's that I'm joined as ever by the right honourable boffin, Dr Sam Summers, who like any esteemed academic will surely delight in distilling his entire area of
1: expertise into a basic worst to best ranking. Sam, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I'm a big fan of rankings. Um, I don't know if the academic world frown on that, frown on the search for objective truth in our uh, enjoyment of <laughs> films, but when I wrote my PhD a few years ago, I spent a long time ranking every single film in the filmography of my PhD, which was like several hundred movies. And uh, <laughs> what well, came out on top? I think it was The Incredibles. I think it was <laughs> I think The Incredibles was the best one that I mentioned in my PhD dissertation. <laughs> Just like, and that was all animated films, right? So
0: that was that a mix of Disney and DreamWorks and Pixar and all of that. And, and Incredibles came out top.
1: It came out top, but it was also uh, it also included films that animated films referenced because a lot of my PhD was about intertextuality, so The Godfather was on there, like, Goodfellas, Taxi Driver, you know, some some genuine live-action classics. None of them quite as good as Incredibles in my eyes. Do you
0: know what? I would watch The Incredibles over The Godfather literally any day. Yeah, yeah Any yeah. day. What are your top ten rankings? I've done a few, and, like, uh, journalists frown on them, or some do. I think they're kind of fun, and they're obviously completely subjective, which is kind of what makes them fun but I like reading people's reasonings for the crazy choices they make. I'm going to give a little shout out to Ella Kemp who was part of a Pixar ranking that I read the other day. Uh, I can't remember the site, I'm sorry, but it was genuinely insane. I was texting Sam about it like, what the
1: Was that the was one where the... Toy Story 4 came out on top?
0: Toy Story 4 was number one and Cars 3 was at the bottom. The best of the three Cars films. I mean, the Cars 3 doesn't go particularly high in the ranking. <laughs>
1: No, it's the best of the three Cars films, so it's only the third worst Pixar film, but it's... (laughs) Yeah, not on the bottom, surely not worse than Cars two. I enjoyed reading the
0: justifications. That's the point. Um, I, so I've done. I've been part of Pixar rankings and Ghibli rankings and all sorts. And it's brutally difficult once you actually get down to trying to like decipher the difference between. Um, oh, the Pixar one was nuts because he's just like the the things between them of how great they all are, especially when you get to the top ten. is just the most minuscule things.
1: Well, I feel like every so often along the way, we should pick moments like this, time where like big sea changes occur in disney history and rank everything up to that point thus far and at least at least come to the table with our top fives and it'll get more and more difficult as more and more films are added to the mix mm.
0: i mean as we've alluded to yeah there's a reason that we're doing this this episode now because we're going to talk about this a bit later but we are sort of entering into a new era of disney from this point forward and as part of our discussion today we will be doing a ranking of these first five films so far but that's uh, coming a little bit later in the show
1: so, yeah, as as Ben kind of mentioned before, the reason why we're having this discussion now is because this was, uh, you know, following Bambi, the space in between Bambi and Disney's next feature, Saludos Amigos, is kind of also the site of some big industrial and broader historical changes, which really brought an end to this first big golden age of Disney animation, and we'll talk a bit more about what those reasons are towards the end, what those factors were that led to it coming to a close, but these five movies that we've looked at so far i always see them as kind of the big five this kind of almost sacred bunch of five films this collection which represent everything that was going on at the disney studio at the time and which bring together a lot of different ideas a lot of different aspects of Walt's creative sensibilities and the talents of the artists that were working for him and the different technological developments that were being undertaken as well so I thought this would be a good point to pause and ask you, Ben, how are you feeling about what we've watched so far? What are your thoughts? What are your impressions of what we've seen? How did they live up to your expectations?
0: I mean, you'll be glad to know that five episodes into this podcast, I'm still glad that we're doing this project. (laughs) I am enjoying them. I'm really enjoying the films. Yeah, so many of them, as we've discussed in the previous episodes, I think that I either haven't seen before or haven't seen in so, so long. So just to revisit them and see how sort of alive and real these films are in a way that they're so well known but they become just a series of images or songs and so to revisit them as fully fleshed films has been really enjoyable and i've been pleasantly surprised so far by how well everything holds up like these films are 85 odd years old like they are nearly a century old but they still by and large play by the same rules and rhythms as animated films today and i think it's really interesting seeing how we sort of accept it. We just accept that this is what animated films are like. This is what Disney films are like. But I am really struck by the fact that they were inventing this stuff. They were making it up. And this is the the sort of nexus, the genesis of all of those things. So I, I think it's really interesting how well they play today, how on the one hand, lots of things have changed in that intervening time. But in a lot of ways, this really did set a template that worked and was reused for decades and decades and decades to come yeah
1: you know in large part that is obviously due to this like immense sway that the disney company has held over the animation industry for a long time they have been the absolute kind of hegemonic force the dominant force in that industry to an extent that you know for a long time they were the only studio consistently putting out big budget Animated features and even when other studios started to join in in the 1990s and started to really compete For the most part they were making movies heavily inspired or imitated in what Disney were doing at that time as well So a lot of it is down to this kind of dominance that they exerted over the field But also that wouldn't have happened They wouldn't have gotten to that point if these films didn't contain within them some truly timeless elements and if they weren't just really solidly built entertaining movies which contained within them a formula that was able to be repeated to great results over and over again.
0: I want to pick up on the word that you just used, formula, because I think to an extent you do feel a bit of that coming through. You see, like we said, that there are elements of of what Disney was doing here that still play with Animated films today and with Disney films today. But the other thing that I've been really struck by so far is how sort of experimental and kind of edgy these films are. Mm. Like, if you think of the phrase, people use the phrase. Disneyfication in a negative sense to talk about something that is that is watered down, that the edges have been shaved off, that it's been softened and honestly like half of the films that we've looked at so far have not had those qualities at all. I'm sure that's something that probably comes into play a little bit later into the the Disney catalogue but for where we are right now you think of something like Pinocchio you think of the darker bits of Fantasia they're challenging, they are kind of weird and upsetting (laughs) and like I'm still haunted by by pinocchio we're going to be completely transparent we've recorded a bunch of episodes in the summer it's now the week between christmas and new year we're doing a sort of new block of recording so it's it's months since we first started talking about these films i'm still haunted by pinocchio sam i still i'm <laughs> freaked out by everything that happened in that film
1: yeah these films are all quite dark surprisingly dark when you go back to them i think that's something that actually i think all five of them have in common And that might be something that can be seen to deviate from what we might consider now to be the Disney formula. And whether or not a Disney formula exists and what it consists of is something that's actually quite hotly debated in academia, both in books that have been published over the last 10 or so years at least, and also just in arguments I've gotten into on Twitter (laughs) with colleagues. But um, I always say that the Disney formula Exists, but it's descriptive rather than prescriptive. It's not something that the Disney artists feel the need to Adhere to when they're making these movies and it certainly wasn't something that they felt the need to adhere to At this point in time making these particular five original films. It's something that has been codified over the years by the public's perception of what a Disney movie is Which is in large part a reaction to Disney's framing of their own history So whenever a movie like um, The Little Mermaid or The Princess and the Frog or Frozen comes out, which is pitched by Disney as a return to the Disney formula, a return to their classic roots, that's a version of, of classic Disney which Disney has itself kind of concocted in order to sell their movies. Which actually leaves out a lot of the really interesting, crazy, bizarre stuff That was in these original movies, that was in these classical Disney movies, which is something that people like you, going back to them, either for the first time or after having been, you know, influenced by later Disney films, in terms of your expectations, it's going to subvert a lot of those expectations and there's going to be a lot of stuff that you weren't expecting.
0: I mean, there's definitely a big gap between the sort of general pop cultural space that Disney holds, the image that it cultivates for itself, and the actual content of of these films. And that's something that I've been thinking about a lot as well, because in general, talking about people's perceptions of Disney and a perception that they themselves have contributed to or helped to, to shape themselves, is that Disney films and animated films in general, they're for kids. They're kids' films but they're they're kind of really not, especially when you look at these. I think it's really interesting that these are probably coming out at a time where even the sort of cartoon shorts and things, it was just general popular entertainment. It wasn't sort of necessarily given that categorization of being like, oh, it's for families or it's for kids. And I think you really feel in these films so far that some of them probably play better for adults than they do for kids. Like, I don't know, other than just the general like, oh, it's bright colors and shiny things. If you look at something like Fantasia, I don't really know what a little kid would get out of that compared to an adult, you know? I, I And I, I know that's something that you think about a lot as well, the way that sort of Disney films and animated films are sort of seen as being for kids, even though that's not really true.
1: Yeah, I mean, you as a little kid, as we discussed, took away the dinosaurs from Fantasia. Mm-hmm. That's, that's there for the little kids. Yeah. But to get to the dinosaurs, you have to wade through five minutes of this like abstract depiction of the earth's formation with like (laughs) earthquakes and volcanoes and and no characters on screen whatsoever so yeah what it wasn't trying to be that it wasn't trying to be for kids obviously uh, particularly movies like snow white and dumbo have a lot in them that kids are going to respond to but these films were no more or less for kids than any other movie released in the 1930s or 40s was. These were movies for everybody. These stratifications weren't really in play yet in the movie industry.
0: I mean, the the last thing that I was really struck by when I was thinking back on my reaction to these films so far... As like I said, I just love the sense of invention, and it's been really interesting talking to you about all of the invention that was happening in an sort of industry level. Like, I'm really captured by the idea of of Fantasound for Fantasia, <laughs> and uh, in the Dumbo episode, we were talking about the rotor book and how that was a sort of failed experiment. I love the idea that between those things and and the multiplane camera. There was a lot of invention going on and and some of these technologies really paid off. Some of them we probably still use today in a sense or use the principles and there are other things that are sort of these weird experiments that didn't quite work that are sort of lost to time. It's been amazing hearing about those.
1: So also looking back at these films I'm interested in something that really interests me with regards to the Walt Disney Studio at this point in time during Walt's lifetime is the extent to which Walt Disney the Man is considered an auteur and is considered to exert an artistic influence over what's depicted in these movies because we've talked about he wasn't a director he wasn't an artist he wasn't an animator or you know he he dabbled in all of these things but on these features he played the role of a producer at least that was his credit on the movies and today we generally consider the directors or the writers to be the author's of films rather than producers and um, so I'm interested in looking at these movies as a body of work that is often ascribed to Walt Disney as an artist but also of course films which had many recurring artists working on them and I was interested if we can look at these films and if you've picked up on any particular themes and and preoccupations that Walt and these other artists have, have brought to these movies as a cycle yeah I
0: mean there's definitely Things that I've picked up that seem to recur through through these films in various ways. You're you're probably better at tying them all together, but I'll tell you what I've picked out, and you can fill in the blanks. Um, so I, I mean, a lot of them tend to be about kind of young characters finding their way in the world. You've got. Pinocchio is he's he's only just gained sentience (laughs) and he's been pulled in all sorts of different directions like Snow White maybe to a slightly lesser extent although she's still kind of lived a kind of sheltered life and goes off into the woods and discovers this society of dwarfs (laughs) and falls in love with a prince that she sees for two seconds you've got Dumbo who is a little kid trying to find out what he's doing with his big ears and why everyone's making fun of him and uh Bambi obviously you've got that to a massive extent as well in terms of that sort of life cycle of Bambi that the film is his coming of age so that kind of really stood out to me and I think the other thing is just that as we talked in these episodes, they're all sort of morality or folk tales. They are they're often based on classic stories and yeah, they tend to have a sort of strong moral message to them, all presented with loads of cute animals. <laughs> so that that's what I've kind of picked up on so far. Would you say that's relatively accurate? Yeah,
1: that's pretty solid. Those are definitely things that that recur. And I think this fact that a lot of the movies are coming-of-age stories starring young child characters is part of what's contributed to them being considered to be children's films because these are all child characters that children can relate to and this is something that I think almost comes full circle in the last movie of this era which was Bambi because Bambi is a movie which if you think about like Pinocchio and Dumbo, those movies end where a character has reached a particular point of evolution in their childhood, where a character has come of age to an extent, whether it's Pinocchio becoming a real boy or Dumbo and to fly, they've discovered something about themselves. Bambi goes further than that. Bambi pushes and pushes with this coming of age narrative until he reaches the age that his father was at the start of the movie and he has his own child. And he, like his father, is now watching his family grow from afar and walking off into the distance. And the cycle has kind of been completed. So, yeah, I think this interesting, in almost this Blakeian notion of innocence and experience, which comes through particularly in Pinocchio as he encounters all of the various vices. Um, of the real world, of the adult world, is something that Bambi follows through with all the way to the point where it connects to another thing that I wanted to talk about, which was this idea of cyclicality, which is something that comes up in so many of the segments in Fantasia, right? Yes,
0: yeah, we talked about it's the changing of the seasons and it's time moving on and things sort of escalating and then de-escalating and and equilibrium is restored and you get the sense, especially our boy Chernobog, he (laughs) rises every night... He terrorises everybody and then he chills out in the daytime and then night comes back and jitterbugs back again.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and Bambi sort of takes this idea of cyclicality and horns in on it and really takes his time with it and focuses on it for the length of a feature film, which I think is is part of what makes that film so effective. And I know you found that film to be very effective.
0: Completely. Um, Yeah, I, I think it has been interesting seeing these themes emerge and also just things that you go, oh, this feels like... Like classic Disney, like it is cute animals, it is lovely, memorable songs, it is moral tales. A lot of those things still feel like part of Disney today.
1: Mm. And we also see that that the settings and source materials of these films evolve from a preoccupation with Europe and European source materials in the the fairy tales that inspired Snow White, the Grimm stories, the Italian novel that inspired Pinocchio, and the exclusively European classical compositions that inspired Fantasia into Dumbo and Bambi which are very American stories and and take place in America and bring with them aspects of American culture and ideology. So for example, obviously most notoriously In Dumbo, we have the crows, we have versions of African Americans, we have versions of American racial racial dynamics in this movie. And I think it's no coincidence that this is also the first Disney film that is set in America and based on American source material. And those dynamics are something that, and those prejudices are something that necessarily come along with that. Not that that's something Disney was interested in interrogating, but it does speak to the dark side of this idealized version of kind of of turn-of-the-century America and contemporary America which Disney is often credited with bringing to life in his movies and in a nostalgic way almost.
0: I think it's interesting like you say the I hadn't really picked up on the fact that so much of the influence on these first five films is European because you think of Disney as being like quintessentially Mm -hmm. all-American and I kind of hadn't really picked up that you don't feel that necessarily until those last two films. I think you really feel it with Dumbo because Dumbo begins with that map of America and it's uh, you literally kind of swoop down into that map from on high. Um, so it definitely it feels like that's sort of recalibrating you or resituating you into a different area of storytelling compared to those first three features.
1: Yeah, it's always been a dichotomy in Walt's work all the way through, I think, moving backwards and forwards between European and American influencers. And we'll see that in his animated films going forward. Uh, And it'll be interesting to think about what exactly that means when we look at movies set in America like Lady and the Tramp And you also see that in his in his live-action films and in Disneyland as well that the theme park which was kind of his final magnum opus was building that theme park in which Main Street USA the ultimate expression of this nostalgic idea of of turn-of-the-century America Rubs up against Frontierland, which also rubs up against Fantasyland, this this European fairy tale world.
0: One day, Sam, we're gonna do an episode of Disneyversity from Disneyland. <laughs> I, like I need that to happen. We can yeah. stand on Main Street, USA.
1: We'll we'll do five episodes of Disneyversity, one from each section of the park.
0: Yes, yeah, we'll pick the perfect film to do in each uh, in each
1: zone. <laughs> so, Ben, I was also wondering as we move ever closer towards the inevitable ranking if we could talk about some of our other kind of favorite things that were picked out of these movies and because disney films are so often associated with their songs mm-hmm. i'm interested in what some of your favorite songs from these movies were
0: right i have to be completely honest and say i haven't really loved the songs so far as somebody who has a bit of a soft spot for for disney songs and i'm especially thinking of like the 90s renaissance stuff that i grew up with and even the recent like moana the Frozen soundtracks full of bangers. Obviously, it's a very different style of music. There hasn't been any songs that have really captured me so far. Like I said, I think the one that sort of surprised me was April Showers in Bambi, and I'm not quite sure why. I think I'd just sort of forgotten about that song, and it has like stuck around in my head for the last couple of months. I I do find it sort of playing in my head, and I think... We're going to talk about this, but i I really liked Bambi. I liked Bambi a lot, and the fact that the music and that song is so tied into all the themes and the visuals of what's happening in Bambi, it just reminds me of the the natural look of the film, the themes that are going on in terms of the cycles of nature that yet weirdly, if you'd have asked me like which which song are you're going to say from the first five, I don't think I would have
1: guessed that that's the one that stuck with me, but for whatever reason uh, it has I think it's interesting that you've picked up on how different these songs are from the songs that you might be more familiar with from the 1990s efforts because i think if you're coming to these early movies primarily familiar with those 90s films this might be the aspect that's most disappointing because it is very different those films as we'll go on to talk about were very influenced by um broadway composers and lyricists like howard ashman and alan menken who did the songs for the little mermaid and they brought a very broadway sensibility to that these movies are a very different kind of musical and some of them almost kind of push the boundaries of what you might qualify as a musical like the characters don't sing the songs in bambi and bambi the songs are these like expressionistic vehicles for conveying the majesty of nature is what they are right they, they drip drip drop little label showers doesn't have a non-screen performer it's a song that almost comes from the rain as the rain falls down upon the forest it brings with it these notes that's kind of how i see that that sequence is playing out yeah i
0: i wouldn't say bambi was a musical, although the presence of music is there the whole way through and the songs sort of come about organically and leave organically. And like you said, they they feel like they're tied into the general soundscape of the film rather than Mm. the more Broadway style, which is now we're going to stop the film for three minutes for this person to sing about their feelings and by the end of the song, they're going to be in a slightly different place that means the plot can move forward. Um, Yeah, it happens in a very different
1: way. Yeah, you don't really get that. Even Baby Mine in Dumbo, which might be my contender for number one, that isn't you don't see mrs jumbo singing that on screen we associate that song with that character because of the context in which we hear it. but it's actually again sung by this off screen almost narrator figure who you know doesn't narrate the movie but sings this particular song expressing the feelings of this character i also really like when you wish upon a star obviously i've got a soft spot for that i don't know how tied in that is just with my general Soft spot for you know, you know, because it's 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 the Disney theme song, and it encapsulates a lot of those ideas. And
0: mm-hmm. at the time of recording this, I've seen Soul. Sam hasn't seen Soul yet. It's just come out on Disney Plus on on Christmas Day. Sam i'm excited to see what you think of the when you wish upon a star moment
1: in oh okay that's a
0: tiny tease for you i don't think that's any kind of spoiler it's uh but there's something yeah made me laugh a lot if you've seen it it, i hope it made you chuckle too
1: okie dokie well i'm looking forward to that i like it when they do little interesting takes on on the castle and on the song at the start of, of more modern movies so i'm looking forward to that um Another one that kind of stands out to me as a a banger, which I always get stuck in my head, is Pink Elephants on Parade. But (laughs) I don't know if that's a good song or if it's just the perfect accompaniment to a great sequence and a lot of the songs in these movies are inextricable from the sequences that they accompany.
0: Yeah, like... If you think of some of the recent Disney songs, again, I, on my own in private, would listen to those (laughs) as songs in their own right. But the Pink Elephant sequence is incredible. It's nuts but those images are so sort of tied in with that song it's it's its own thing i wouldn't i wouldn't be sitting on my own listening to the pink elephants
1: on parade song <laughs> it would really be really stressful i mean yeah. really anxiety inducing cutting down the street going to the shops or something <laughs> 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 yeah that just really put me on edge for the rest of the day mm which i guess maybe that's a good transition into what were some of your favorite standout sequences from these movies i think ping elephants on parade is an obvious one
0: I mean, for me, the ending of Bambi, just that like ending image of yeah, grown-up Bambi in the same position that his father was in at the start of the film, that whole image has really stayed with me. I can't remember how much of a sequence that necessarily is, but I was really affected by the end of, of Bambi, and I still think on that a lot. The other thing I'm going to mention is something else that really took me by surprise, that I loved, that wasn't necessarily one sequence, but it was all of the live-action orchestra stuff in Fantasia, because I just completely had forgotten that that was there. And yes, all the animated sequences in that are amazing, but there's something so fun and tonally playful about... The presentation of the orchestra and um, Stakovsky and the silhouettes and that sequence where Mickey Mouse and Stakovsky shake hands in silhouette <laughs> against that orange background is amazing. I, I, those are the things that have really s- stuck out to me.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I just completely blank out for those sequences because I'm not interested in anything that's not animated. I'm just, <laughs> I just turn it <laughs> off. I just close my eyes and open them back up again when the cartoons come back. Um, speaking of which. Chernobog, night on board mountain into Ave Maria—that's stunning. That might be my number one sequence from this cycle of films. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. It shows off so many different kind of techniques and technological advances in the way that it realizes all the different spooky characters, the witches and goblins and things, as well as having this. Central character that you just can't take your eyes off this incredible piece of music and then also this really touch and coda in the Ave Maria sequence
0: Mm. I mean you are the number one Chernobog stan (laughs) I I, I did kind of love the Chernobog stuff. I have to say I was a bit bored by Ave Maria It was too much of a come down after the uh, the the intensity of Chernobog
1: I think it goes on for maybe slightly too long, but I I think it plays its part And I I think it's very pretty yeah something that I just like to mention. It probably might not even make my top five sequences from this era but I've recently been going back through Bambi to get screenshots for our Instagram account, and a sequence that on rewatching it really jumped out to me as being stunning is the first trip onto the meadow in Bambi where his mother takes him out of the meadow and you get this uh, really effective use of negative space the shots where it's like Bambi's mother cramped into the bottom left corner of the screen and then this enormous expanse of mist behind her this like impressionistically illustrated almost visible brush strokes in the depiction of this mist and just a really beautiful artistic image and a really effective piece of filmmaking as well.
0: I think because the the forest stuff and his very early life feels all quite hemmed in and then yeah the difference is she takes him out into the world and and looking onto how vast how much more there is out there in the meadow is so effective.
1: Yeah it's a great way of conveying this particular step on his journey from innocence to experience isn't it all right so moving on from that just before we hit the ranking i was wondering if you had any particular favorite characters any anyone that you're desperate to get an official disney store plushie of
0: so weirdly enough okay both of mine i've got two and they are both from dumbo one of which is Dumbo himself because he just breaks my heart and I think he's super cute and you feel so sorry for him in that film. He's so cute and lovely and everyone's so horrible to him. So my heart absolutely breaks for uh, for Dumbo. But of course you can get Dumbo stuff everywhere. There are Dumbo plushies, you can get all of that. The one that I really want What's the name of the happy train? Who's the happy train? Casey Jr. Casey Jr. Coming down the track. Yeah. I Like, he was just super endearing. I don't know why I loved Casey Jr. He was just a fun-loving train that loved to chug across the USA.
1: I mean... it If I pick a character from Dumbo who I really want an action figure or a toy of, it would be my favourite of the pink elephants, the one big elephant made from several smaller elephants. Yes, it's like the elephant zord. Yeah, exactly. I want to get a toy which consists of like six elephants who you can assemble together like Voltron to, (laughs) you know, form this one gigantic elephant.
0: Surely somebody's made that. That has to exist somewhere, right? Like even a bootleg toy operation (laughs) has had to make these, yeah six individual creepy pink elephants stick them all together
1: he's on legs he's got a big trunk i'll be taking it straight to ebay after this you know that um favorite characters for me i like someone who's i think really effective and stars in one of the best scenes in that movie is uh lampwick from pinocchio like he really gets the point across right he's not a complex character but right. he's a very he loves to
0: scrap <laughs> yeah he's a little mischievous guy who loves to scrap
1: he likes drinking and smoking and shooting pool and you know he, he does the job and he's he's very entertaining while he does so obviously i love chernabog that's not even worth mentioning i like the, the alligator and the hippo from fantasia i think that's a great image of those two guys dancing Just Mm -hmm. a lot of personality in those characters without dialogue and in a very short space of time as well. Um and oh I'll throw in Jiminy Cricket icon as well. Oh he's a decent he's a
0: decent enough guy. I like I I think i think there's a reason why casey jr (laughs) has made my top two because i i think as great as these films are and that they have memorable characters they don't have many characters that i love that i like hold close to my chest that i have a real affection for Mm. especially compared to i don't want to keep comparing it to the 90s stuff but that is the disney that i grew up on that i do have affection for um and yet, these films don't necessarily have like characters that I hold close to my chest in that way. Also, there's a bunch of them that I just flat out didn't like. Dopey's on the list. <laughs> Gideon the Cat is on the list. Basically, everyone in Pinocchio, the, the the devil carriage guy. Lampwick's on mine. He was nasty, and he turned into a donkey, and it was horrible. Um, Monster of the Whale, definitely not making my top five. Yeah. I I didn't love a lot of these characters so far, but I think we maybe start to get towards an era of Disney soon where the films are maybe a little bit more about the characters than about everything else going on.
1: Yeah, would you say? Yeah, and it's, especially at this point in time, these you know you've basically got one main character. You've got your Snow White, or I think this is especially the case in. Uh, Pinocchio and Dumbo, you've got your one main character who you like, and then the world around them is almost exclusively populated by horrible, horrible people who serve no purpose other than to make their life miserable, which is why a reassuring presence like Jiminy Cricket or Casey Jr. is a real light shining through the darkness there.
0: Woo, woo. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Once... i
1: Casey Jr. <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. It was a really, really Thanks, solid man. impression. Thanks, I needed that validation. <laughs> but once we hit the 1950s with things like Cinderella and Lady and the Champ, you do start to get these really memorable characters and memorable sidekicks and things as well, uh, who people still love to do. And also, what's quite exciting is that in the next batch of movies, uh, which we're going to talk about a little bit towards the end of this episode, the next batch of movies of um, compilation films that we're going to be looking at, We're going to meet uh, or re-meet some of our old Disney friends in those movies. We're going to be meeting people like um, Donald Duck and Goofy for the first time on this podcast. And, you know, those guys are great. Those guys are great characters. Very lovable. You'll have a great time with them, Ben. I'm looking forward to it. So as time moves inexorably onwards, I think we have finally made it to the dreaded ranking where i am (laughs) particularly dreading it because well i was going to say i was worried about what you were going to pick but actually Mm -hmm. these movies to me are all pretty perfect movies you know with the exception of some less tasteful elements and something like dumbo these are all pretty solid five-star movies for me whether in terms of their actual content or in terms of their significant place in history or both so i don't think there's any permutation of your ranking that could upset me in any way, but let's find out. Let's find out. Because easily
0: I'm gonna go in uh reverse order. So easily my number five, bottom of the list, you're surely expecting it, is Pinocchio, and I think that's your number one. Pinocchio, I just I genuinely didn't enjoy watching it for a lot of the time because it was so stressful and um and really upsetting and had a really uh it just it was bad vibes, man. That was a that was a bad vibes film. And I mean, all of them, like you said, they are all very impressive films and I've really enjoyed going back and re-watching them all and seeing the context and stuff, but I can't see myself ever watching Pinocchio again, especially not with if I hopefully have kids someday, never showing them Pinocchio. I think it's interesting, since we recorded that episode... They've now officially, obviously, confirmed the live-action, well, semi-live-action Robert Zemeckis Pinocchio with Tom Hanks as Geppetto. That's something you mentioned in the um, uh, Lasting Legacy section of potential upcoming live-action-ish film. I know that's a a controversial term, Sam. We don't have time to get into your feelings (laughs) on what exactly Disney's live-action stuff means. But... um, Yeah, I'm fascinated to see what Zemeckis does with that to kind of keep it to the essence of what Pinocchio is while also not traumatising an entire new generation.
1: Yeah, that's going to be a weird one. I watched the teaser for that and you get a brief glimpse of Pinocchio, the character in the teaser for that film and he looks exactly like Pinocchio from the animation which got me thinking I did not expect that I did not expect him to look exactly like Pinocchio from the animation and maybe this is just concept art and he's not actually gonna look like that But it did make me think yeah, why not? He's a puppet. He's not a person a puppet can look like anything, so why can't a puppet look exactly like old-school Pinocchio? But yeah, what we're really excited for is, um, well, I imagine someone like Stromboli probably won't make an appearance on account of being something of a ethnic caricature, but someone like The Coachman, or are they going to bring Honest John and Gideon into it as photorealistic, like, walking and talking animals? Get the digital fur technology out. It's going to be Cats 2.0. Yeah. That donkey scene with oh, guest I, I, director I, I, David Cronenberg putting together that yeah. donkey scene. Oh, it's going to be awful. I kind of can't wait to see what they do with it. So that, that was my number five. Well, obviously, you're wrong. But <laughs> I mean, I can see it. To be honest, I know Ben Travis, and I really should have known that this was not going to be the one that you... You know, It was not going to be a high ranker for you. It, it doesn't yeah. fit with your vibe... In any way whatsoever, does it? <laughs> it doesn't, know.
0: Okay, so Pinocchio was bottom of the list. And number four for me was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which I really enjoyed watching it. Like, I had a great time with it, and I found it so impressive how it was the first one and how current it still felt. At the same time, we discussed it in the episode, a lot of dwarf shenanigans in that middle section. I think it also just feels, understandably, quite simplistic compared to everything that came after it. So, um, yeah, it was just a bit outstripped in, in some of those areas by, mm. by the next films.
1: Yeah, it's, it's before they really hit their stride, certainly in terms of narrative like the complexity of the narrative and the complexity of the characters is far below what you're going to see in in Pinocchio and Dumbo and Bambi isn't it
0: it was a starting point it was an incredible starting point but it was just the beginning really so that's number four for me number three is Fantasia which I think for being effectively an anthology film always means that there are bits of it that are kind of amazing bits of it that you're less keen on and I just don't see myself returning to it at least, not as a whole film, anytime in the near future, really. Some of the sequences in it were incredible, like The Rite of Spring and Chernobog and Sorcerer's Apprentice. And like I said, the, the live action stuff really t- took me by surprise. I loved that. But it was long. It was really long. Yeah. I was done with Fantasia by the end. I think it's an incredible, like, cultural artifact and we spoke a lot in that episode about the context of going to see it that you'd go out to see it as an event that is the way that I would see Fantasia again if there was a live orchestral concert of Fantasia where they play the film in the background and they have a live orchestra there I've seen that for other films Jurassic Park and Harry Potter it was incredible if they did that for Fantasia then I would watch it again but for now like I'm done with it.
1: Yeah, I think they've done that a few times in the States. I'm not sure if it's ever made it over here, but if it does, especially if it happens post-corona world, then I will be right there. Um, Yeah, we'll have to go. So really what you want is a kind of build-your-own Fantasia where you can just pick like 90 minutes worth of your favorite sequences and trim out some of the, the baggier bits
0: pretty much and as he said obviously he was they were toying with refreshing that film in the years to come that they would take sections out and put new ones in so we were sadly denied the fantasia mega mix but uh yeah i'll make my own make my own playlist so there's only Bambi and Dumbo left. Which do you think is my number two? I think
1: your number two is Dumbo and your number one's is Bambi. Yeah,
0: my number two is Dumbo. I enjoyed Dumbo a lot, despite, as you said, the some of the really uncomfortable and unsavoury racism in that is difficult to watch. But in terms of the rest of the film, it was really enjoyable. I liked how kind of sharp it was. It's just over an hour long. It does a lot in that time. Dumbo is a character I really warmed to, I had a lovely time with him. Uh, even though he was having a horrible time and yeah great film so number one is Bambi number one is Bambi easily like I think in that episode we talked about the fact that I love coming-of-age movies and this even in the context of the fact that a lot of these Disney films are these early Disney films are effectively coming-of-age stories Bambi really is and that cyclical nature of the story and like you said the fact that it goes far beyond the point that the other Disney films go to of like no you see him fully grown up and There was something that just really struck me about that. And again, I'm still not sure if I'd ever be there on a Friday night, cracking open a beer and sticking Bambi on. But that's the one that has made the biggest impression on me. And it was one that I didn't really have much to think on before this. Like, I'm I'm sure I had seen Bambi, but I didn't know a huge amount about it. And so that was a real surprise for me. I, I really enjoyed Bambi.
1: Well, you might be pleasantly surprised to know that Bambi has actually moved up in my rankings. Yeah. It's because like Bambi Hive. Yeah, my ranking has actually changed quite well not quite a bit. It's changed in one significant regard compared to the ranking that I would have done prior to doing this podcast. My number 5 was have been Bambi because, you know, I've seen it I've seen it a few times. Yeah, mm-hmm. but and it, nothing about it ever really gripped me but on doing this podcast and I think talking to you about it and listening to some of the things that you said you liked about it kind of drew some of those positive aspects out for me and i also did a lecture about it in the interim as well which was you know again makes you look at it in more detail makes you look at it in a new light and also going through the film like i said earlier to pick out screenshots for the instagram really made me just stop and look at some of the imagery some of the incredible like painted backgrounds for example in that movie so all in all well, Bambi's moved up from number five to number four, <laughs> <Hooray>. <laughs> which maybe is a bit of a naughty climax, but that just speaks to how high regard I hold the um, top three films on my list. Yeah, give me your five to one. So five is Snow White. Like we said, mm-hmm. I think it, it's the starting point. It gets immediately surpassed by Pinocchio and by every, every subsequent film. Obviously incredibly important, but I think to an extent we do have to judge these movies on their actual merits and on how much they hold up and i think snow white handily holds up the least in terms of its story and its characters especially then i've got bambi in at number four dumbo is my number three for many of the reasons that you said i think it's um it's a great example of of a short tight simple story with a character that you really really get behind with some incredible character animation to bring Dumbo to life, being as he is a character without any dialogue, but with a huge personality, and obviously Pink Elephants being its centrepiece, which is one of the most visually spectacular and daring things that Disney have put out to that point. Number two is Fantasia for me, because, you know, just the incredible breadth of techniques and artistic choices being made in that film, and, you know, just watching it, as an experience like you're saying really just sitting down and taking it all in but also being able to pick out individual scenes and standout moments and sequences which um you can revisit in isolation again and again and again just for how kind of daring and ambitious it was as a project and number one for me pinocchio i just think of the bunch despite how ceaselessly horrible it is which i will grant you is the case Of the bunch, it has, for me, the best characters in terms of, like, their characteristics and their development as characters. You get Geppetto and Jiminy and Pinocchio all have very clear arcs. It has the most characters with kind of clearly defined arcs of any of these first five films, in my opinion. Also, because of the massive leap up that it represents after Snow White, like, in terms of, obviously, I've said many times characters and story, but also the... Complexity and the ambition of the actual animation and the effect techniques that were pioneered in that film as well and things like the underwater sequences. Yeah, artistically, technically, I think it's the most accomplished film of this period, and I think it's going to hold on to that top spot or something close to it for a long time as we'll go through yeah. these movies. The thing I love about these rankings is that it just completely shows who we
0: are. Like I'm a bit of a soft boy, you're a bit of a secret god <laughs> You're like Chernobog and all the horrible stuff in Pinocchio and I'm like oh Bambi and Dumbo I love them
1: <laughs> oh that's so true and yeah I think every so often when we're doing this pod we should do one of these bonus episodes where we'll maybe just talk about if our top five is updated if anything's managed mm-hmm. to make it into the top five from what we've seen I think that'd be fun that sounds good yes we'll keep
0: that up as we go along Before we wrap up this bonus mini-episode, let's tee up what comes next, because these first five films are all beloved classics, but the next run of Disney movies aren't so well-known, and this is a time when things were changing for the studio. What can you tell us about what comes next, Sam?
1: Yeah, so this imperial phase, as you might call it, of Disney films, came to an end for a reason. It didn't just stop, they didn't just, like, surpass their artistic stride and start kind of making repetitive and formulaic movies, as happens with a lot of filmmakers and studios. You know, there were two specific concrete factors that brought this period to an end, and one of which was the artist strike in 1941. So, in 1941, in particular, protestant unfair wages and also Walt's refusal to recognise the the screen cartoonists guild which was like the nascent union that was being built up at the other studios to represent animation artists in protest to these developments hundreds of the disney artists went on strike including nearly all of the kind of incas and in-betweeners people lower down the totem pole but also some of the really well-paid top character animators as well who had sympathy for the less well-paid workers and this created a huge amount of animosity between the animate and walt who never really realized or acknowledged that any kind of unrest was was building in the ranks he always saw himself as a father to these guys as like a father figure or a friend to the people working beneath them and he was really upset that they had any kind of animosity towards him let alone enough to make them go on strike and this led to hundreds of artists actually leaving the studio so eventually it was resolved and he recognized he was forced to recognize the union but so many of the artists had become disillusioned with disney the man and the company that they left and this included some big names like um art babbitt who was the leader of the strike and one of the highest paid animators at disney probably most significant contribution was the development of goofy as a character so he worked a lot on those goofy shorts and bill titler who i think we've already mentioned who was For my money, the most gifted character animator at the studio who created... Um, Chernobog and Dumbo and put so much personality into those characters Uh, also Tyrus Wong who was a a Chinese-born artist who created the look for Bambi effectively so he only really worked you know played a significant role on that one Disney movie but the visuals in that film most of which are his actual background paintings that he did himself are so spectacular it does make you wonder what else he could have achieved working at that studio
0: yeah that's such a shame because like you said the whole general artistic
1: style Bambi feels so distinct even within these five films. And speaking of distinct artistic styles, uh, a group of animators, including them, um, Steve busustow T. He, and in particular John Hubley, would go on to form or work at a new studio called UPA, who made films that you might have heard of, and if you haven't, you should seek out like the Mr. Magoo series and uh, Gerald McBoing Boing which has a very amusing name (laughs) but it's a very important film and my favorite rooty toot toot which brought like a minimalist style to animation which is so incredibly distinct from what disney was putting out at the time and these films brought like techniques from modernist painting like the color field movement and the style movement to animation to create these really distinct films and characters you know that some of the visuals in rooty toot toot are just astonishing and combined the cartoon style that was being developed at the Looney Tunes studios and places like that with this mid-century modernist aesthetic to great effect and again it makes you wonder what would have happened if these artists had remained at Disney and were able to bring some of these stylistic principles to play in those films but also of course had they continued to work at Disney films like that might never have been made if they weren't able to extricate themselves from Walt's particularly rigid creative ideals so this was, this was one big factor which had a huge impact, you know, both in terms of it cost the studio quite a bit of time and money, it, it meant that they weren't able to work on a lot of the movies that were in production at this time, but it also cost them a lot of talent that weren't necessarily easily replaceable. And that's one of the issues that kind of brought this Imperial phase to an end. But another one, of course, was the Second World War which had already impacted Disney's box office performance overseas. we talked about films like Pinocchio and Bambi weren't anywhere near as successful as they could have been because they didn't have access to these European and Asian markets. But it became a more pressing concern with the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941 as America joined the war. Animators were conscripted to actually fight in the military. Parts of the Disney Studio were also commandeered by the army to house troops because there was an aircraft factory nearby which they had to keep an eye on so these studio buildings were now basically army pieces for these guys oh my goodness so they were hampered in what they could actually do um Mm. again they've got a little bit of an exodus of the talent there because people have, have had to go and fight in the war but also along with hollywood's other animation studios disney was contracted to produce training and propaganda films which formed the overwhelming majority of their output during this time.
0: So that was your uh, dopey war bonds. Yeah, Dopey selling <laughs> war
1: bonds. <laughs> yeah. And Mickey Mouse selling war bonds. Donald selling some war bonds. Um, so like there's a film called *The Führer's Face*, which is a pretty notorious Donald Duck movie because a lot of images mm-hmm. from it get shared out of context. It's a basically Donald Duck having a nightmare where he's in Nazi Germany, so he's dressed as a Nazi and working in a munitions factory. And you often see frames from. That shared like look Walt Disney was a Nazi sympathizer. There's Donald Duck dressed as a Nazi. No, he wasn't Donald Duck was strongly in favor of the war effort and (laughs) and against the Nazi party and everything it stood for. There'll be no slander of Donald Duck here. No, sir. No need to cancel our man Donald. Another really interesting film that they made was a documentary called victory through air power which is um, it's basically a feature-length lecture from an author called alexander de who wrote this book that really caught walt's imagination basically a polemic trying to convince the u.s government to invest more in the air force than the other branches of the military and walt thought that one way to help with this would be to get zversky in the studio to basically read from his book for an hour and a half accompanied by animated illustrations of aircraft being built and there's this huge fight between an eagle and an octopus representing the u.s air force and the japanese navy for example so it's an interesting combination of some of walt's animation techniques being put to work in this propagandistic way and supposedly Churchill and Roosevelt were very taken by the film and it might have actually impacted some of their policy.
0: Which um, legendary animation giants do you think prefers Planes? Disney or Miyazaki. Miyazaki
1: <laughs> loves him some aircraft. Miyazaki loves the kind of enchanting experience of flying through the sky, whereas Walt prizes airplanes for their destructive capabilities. <laughs> whereas Miyazaki, quite literally the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> he loves the idea of flight,
0: hates what aircraft are used for. Yeah. So that sort of takes us into the, the next era of films, which are six... How would you describe them? They're sort of like anthology,
1: musical... The term that is often used is package films. So, because of the lack of funds, manpower, talent, and creative freedom that was brought on by the war, which actually had an impact that outlasted the war, Disney wouldn't produce a full length animated feature between Bambi in 1942 and Cinderella in 1950. In the interim, we'll get these package features. Six of them, um, Saludos Amigos, The Three Caballeros, Make My Music, Fun and Fancy Free, Melody Time, and The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, which is a spectacular title, which bring together short subjects or ideas for feature films that they weren't able to stretch out the full length because of budgetary concerns into these like review films these these packages which were exhibited in theaters and which are considered part of the disney animated canon
0: yes they are part of the 57 i'm really intrigued because i know very little about these films i don't think i've seen any of them i have no idea really what to expect But what we're going to do is we're going to do two films an episode for the next little run. So the next main episode you hear is going to be Saludos Amigos and The Three Caballeros. So if you're watching along, make sure you watch both of those before you download the next pod. After that, we're going to do Make Mine Music and Fun and Fancy Free as one episode. In fact, Make Mine Music is like the only thing that is not available on Disney+. Plus. It's one of the only mainline Disney animated features. It's not on Disney+, Plus. so again, if you're intent on watching all of these, you can buy it pretty easily on DVD. It's like readily available in that sense. Don't know why it's not on Disney+. Plus.
1: Yeah, I have still not been able to figure this out, but I'm going to really put my researcher hat on and try and get to the bottom yeah. of this mystery by the time we record that episode. So that's going to be the second one and then
0: the third episode as we
1: head into these this run of films is going to be
0: Melody Time and the Adventures of Ichabod and Mr Toad. So that's what the next three episodes are going to be they're going to be two in ones and yeah we'll see what was happening during this really tumultuous
1: period in the studio's history i'm so excited for you to watch these movies there's some really really wild stuff in these <laughs> films and like i say you get to meet characters like donald and goofy as well who have been long absent from this podcast and they can't come soon enough i know and we've only had one appearance from mickey and i don't think we're going to see much mickey generally
0: through this podcast
1: yeah but again uh, he comes back in in this in this run so So there's that to look forward to as well. So yeah, join us next time for the first of our double features as we head into an era
0: of Disney that's mysterious, musical and sure to be magical. In the meantime, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Get caught up and we'll see you next week. Bye. Disney-versity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity
1: on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class.